When you think about how the administration is framing infrastructure, they are talking about it from a innovation type competitiveness is the notion of returning U.S. to leadership positions. That's Roz Brooks, U.S. public policy leader for PwC. This is Heather Horn, and thanks for joining me for the next episode of our Forecast 2021 podcast miniseries. Today, we're looking at the current landscape in Washington, particularly focusing on our global competitiveness and relationships with other countries. Rods and I are going to highlight what's expected to come in the near term, from policy changes to taxes to new regulations, and then we'll talk about what it means for your business. Roz, thanks once again for joining me today. I'm looking forward to taking our political discussion in a slightly different direction and talking about the current landscape in Washington, but specifically focusing in on what it means from a global competitiveness and the relationships with other countries' point of view. So and start a lot of different places with this, but feels like the best place to start is with some of the new legislation that's being discussed. So you can pick which one you want to start with and we can go from there. Oh, great. Thanks, Heather. Um, I always enjoy coming on your show and speaking. And so, um, and we always have great discussions. So I'm really looking forward to this. But there's so much, like you said, there's so much that we could be talking about. I mean, obviously, the most recent things we've seen has been the President Biden talking about his investment in infrastructure, right? And so when you think about how the administration is framing in- infrastructure, they are talking about it from a innovation type competitiveness is the is the notion of returning us kind of to leadership position if you think about it so a combination of you had the american jobs plan which talked about what we would consider i think traditional infrastructure type things roads bridges you know broadband that kind of thing and then you've got what the administration has termed human infrastructure, or some have called it social infrastructure. When you think about the American Families Plan, whether it's education, childcare, things of that nature, um, we do expect probably later in the year, there'll be additional things like healthcare, et cetera. So right now, the administration is really spending a lot of its capital and a lot of its time talking about the benefits of those plans. And then As I think most of your listeners will be familiar, the the path of paying for this infrastructure, this investment is through the tax code in terms of increasing business taxes as well as taxes on individuals, although the administration and the president has said it would not impact anyone making less than $400,000. And so when you look at some of even the tax proposals on the business side and you think about some of it in the international context, as you think about competitiveness, it takes me to what Treasury Secretary Yellen has kind of been um, engaged with on the world stage in terms of the OECD and dealing with the tax competitiveness issues and taxation of businesses abroad and trying to what seems to be to sell countries on this notion of let's all think differently or think about how we tax our own corporations, how we tax income that's in-country as well as out-country as a means of kind of supporting the president's proposals as it relates to probably expanding the base for the taxation of international income from the U.S. standpoint, right? 
So that's kind of the immediate focus when you think about it. But I think even more so we saw from day one, kind of with the EOs and others, we saw a focus on supply chain resiliency, right? Focusing around semiconductors, focused around PP&E and things that the administration has determined that would be best served to be closer to home in terms of when we look at lessons from the pandemic. Um, I know inevitably we'll get to this, but I think a lot of the legislation that we will see, even aside from infrastructure, has its origins a little bit in the competition with China and how the administration is looking at that and thinking about that and what that is producing in Washington in terms of the ability to both work across the aisle as well as the actual legislation we'll see. So Roz, to your exact point, too many questions to ask because I could take this in so many different directions. But why don't we start where you ended with China? And specifically asking about China, you know, are these bills really just a reaction to some of what we see China doing in terms of investing in its infrastructure? How do we see this in terms of sort of leveling the stage and the ability of the U.S. to compete? So it's interesting because I think, you know, depending on who you ask, you will get a different perspective in terms of, so the the traditional infrastructure that we've kind of been talking about, there have been discussions going on for years about the need for the U.S. to invest in our infrastructure, roads, bridges, broadband, et cetera, railways. And I think this is the opportunity that the administration sees with a House that's controlled by Democrats and a Senate that's narrowly divided with the, the vice president providing the tie-breaking vote to Democrats as an opportunity to actually get it done. Now, whether it gets done in a bipartisan fashion or a partisan fashion, we have yet to see. They're starting to try, I think, to approach it in a bipartisan manner, but we'll see. But there's other legislation that I think is what is interesting when you think about specifically the China aspect and the and the looming competition with China. And it's the one area that I tell people a lot where you do see bipartisan agreement in Washington. Like the parties are divided on a lot of things and many things are politicized. But when you talk about China and the competition with China and American America's ability to kind of counter China, you find much more opportunity and willingness to have bipartisan talks. And so what we've seen is a couple of pieces of legislation that actually have been originating in the Senate that are currently under discussion. You had the Endless Frontier Act that Senator Majority Leader Schumer has kind of put forth and kind of made clear there's another piece of legislation that is about innovation in technology and kind of defense that you'll see as well that came out of the Foreign Relations Committee. But in some form or fashion, the majority leader has said he wants to see these bills on the floor. And in many cases, the expectation is they will come before the infrastructure bill actually comes to the floor. So think about it from the standpoint of infrastructure is the administration's top tier priority, the thing they've asked Congress to kind of muscle through next. Schumer has made the declaration that he'd like to see these bipartisan bills focusing on American investment and American innovation come to the floor before the Senate turns its attention to infrastructure. And it, it causes us in Washington to say, well, is is that because he doesn't believe infrastructure is really going to be bipartisan? And so you need to lay the groundwork before that happens. 
Or is it the case, you know, the house is currently working on the infrastructure package, give them the time, like let some of the bipartisan talks and and some of the negotiations that need to take place, they're going to have to play out. And so this gives you kind of an opportunity to focus on something that you really have a chance of getting done. We'll have to wait and see kind of how that all turns out. But now even on something that has been bipartisan for a long time, what we've started to see in the last week, it was supposed to be um, heard before committee, I think it was last week. And when they went to get amendments that were filed, there were like 200 plus amendments that were filed to it, which led many to believe, uh oh, there's a problem. Like when you have that many amendments being filed to a piece of legislation, and it was interesting that both the, the chairman and the ranking member of the committee were quick to say, look, we're going to take a look at all this. Everyone's interested in making this bill better. This does not mean that it's dead. This does not mean that it's done. But what we were starting to hear are concerns about the amount of investment that was going, because much of the money was going to the National Science Foundation. There were side discussions that were happening about, was that the best place for investment? And then questions about all of this investment without thinking about the potential for paying for it at some point? Are we just kind of giving, you know, free money again, more money without a clear plan on what it is we want done with it? And the House had kind of taken a different approach in terms of they also were looking to make investment, just not at the level that the Senate bill was was looking at. But all of these things and all of these efforts, I think, are pointing to the rhetoric that you hear around We've got to invest more in America, invest more in American innovation to be able to counter what China is doing. And to your point, China has made clear their latest kind of five-year plan. They are turning their focus inward in terms of even more kind of investment internally and investment in R&D and technology, right? From the standpoint of it sounds like they want to be more than just a manufacturer of things. They want to be an originator and a, and kind of an innovator and an exporter. And you heard it in the president's State of the Union address. You know, one of the things that was interesting, they said the two places where the president went off script, kind of from the prepared speech, his prepared remarks, was once when he thanked Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell for naming the cancer bill after his deceased son, Bo Biden. And the second was when he said squarely that he believed China was looking to be a, it was, I'm going to get, I'm going to get it wrong, but basically looking to be a leader in the world or a force. So Roz, I have a lot of questions on why this can be more bipartisan than some of the other bills, but maybe staying away from politics, let's talk about what this might mean for some of our listeners. So let's say there is this amount of innovation funding or other funding. What do we think if I'm the CFO of a company, how should I be thinking about some of these investments, whether it's these innovation ones or ultimately the infrastructure bill that we've talked about? Yeah. You know, I think what's clear from my perspective is that companies shouldn't think, you know, if you're traditionally not in the, you know, traditional thought of infrastructure space. So if you're not the airlines, or if you don't have, you know, if you're not the cities focused on road and bridges, or you're not a construction company, you know, or transportation company, I don't have much to think about as it relates to this. They're kind of doing it aside from the tax piece, which is also huge. I think there are both challenges and opportunities because of the way the administration is thinking about it. They're thinking about it in a very expansive way in terms of infrastructure. So both 
physical infrastructure, as well as what I said, this human infrastructure notion. So I think it's imperative for businesses to be thinking about, okay, how could this potentially impact us? Let's look at kind of what they've been talking about, what they're thinking about from a human infrastructure point, engaging with the administration and with policymakers about the impact of you know, whether it's coming out of the pandemic, whether it's thinking about the next, you know, 100 days, next 180 days, like what it means for your workforce, what things you've been investing in, what assistance and what challenges you've been facing. Like policymakers want to hear all of that as these things are being crafted and delivered. Um, so I think that's an important thing for business to remember that it's not just those that you would traditionally think would be focused on these areas, there is something in this both potentially challenging and I think as an opportunity for all business. And then Roz, let's again, put aside taxes for a moment. One of the big topics we've talked about is income inequality. And I shared with you a brief story that my daughter was doing a paper last week on the last hundred years of American income inequality and said, oh, Biden hasn't done anything. And I said, well, until tonight when he makes his address to Congress. But that said, we did see these huge bills that are intended to address income inequality. And again, putting a corporate spin on it, if I'm a company, how do I think about this investment, the American Families Plan, again, back to the infrastructure bill? What does that mean from a workforce perspective? So I think it's very important as you think about the workforce challenges that many of our companies are facing and that many have faced as a result of the pandemic. What the administration has made clear kind of in the American Families Plan is a focus on paid leave, a focus on childcare, a focus on education from the standpoint of being able for the workforce. You know, there's a, an increasing amount of focus on upskilling and reskilling and thinking about those things from um, how do you support that happening in the workforce. So I think being able to articulate and have a point of view and thinking about how that could potentially impact you or your business in your workforce, kind of the, the importance of it to the workforce. I think the conversation has changed a lot as a result of the pandemic when you think about sick leave, parental leave, paid leave from that standpoint. And I will tell you, you know, as we here in Washington, the administration is certainly listening to the notion both around how business has been engaged from the societal perspective on many of the issues of the day and, and speaking out. The notion, I think, you know, the Edelman Trust Survey had come out and said that business kind of was more trusted than Congress and others, kind of one of the, the most trusted in terms of speaking out on a number of issues. And um, from what we've heard, the administration is definitely wanting to lean in to more policies that they think are beneficial to the workforce because they do believe that this is a time where business, you think about the BRT and their um, their notion that it's not just you know your investors anymore, it's the broader communities that you serve. And so having a, a position or a time in our environment, you know, political environment, society, you know, however you want to think about it, where business is leaning in to a lot of these issues. It's almost the administration saying, we're going to lean in even harder. And like, this is the time you need to pay attention from that standpoint, if you are a leader in a business sitting in the C-suite or any other aspect of the organization, because there is inevitably something coming down the pike, whether from a regulatory standpoint or um, potential 
legislation um, that could get done that has the potential to impact you. So being able to be at the table or at least communicate and articulate or understand how these particular things can impact you as you think about scenario planning or as you even just tune in to kind of what's happening in Washington. I think so many times it's easy to say, oh, you know, they're still talking, they're they're doing whatever, we'll get around to it. This is one of those things where you know, the administration, it seems you have a lot of people who are around during the Obama-Biden um, first years of the administration who feel they didn't go far enough during the financial crisis or following the financial crisis. And now is the time to do that. And so a lot of these proposals that you're hearing, we believe will actually see action and will will come to fruition in some form or fashion. So I think you kind of ignore it to your peril if you're you're in business at this particular time. Well, and Ross, on that point, in terms of if I, again, as a company thinking about all this money coming into the economy, the investment, the dynamics, lots of things to think about. And so if I'm a management team trying to understand the impact on me, you made the point, it's not just if I'm a transportation company or someone directly impacted, but how do you see companies thinking about all these moving parts? Yeah. So I think it's interesting. Business has been, for the most part, very used to thinking about all the ways in which policy or government action kind of impacts it. But it's probably been a while since we've seen this kind of infusion of capital or money into the system, period. So really, just as companies have been scenario planning and thinking about as it relates to the potential for taxes that is also in the planning coming, I think scenario planning and thinking about the opportunities, as well as some of the challenges. They've been doing the same thing around supply chain since we've had former President Trump and his administration in terms of really thinking about what that meant and the tariffs and things. I think it's just the inverse of truly understanding what exists, what's on the table, what is the administration thinking about, kind of how much money has been pumped in to date and how much is kind of another, you know, talking another potential $4 trillion that's on the table, like with $4 trillion being pumped into another infrastructure that's both physical and human. I, I hate to put it, it's almost, there's something for everybody, like as you think about kind of what's out there. And so really trying to understand kind of how the administration is thinking about this and understanding that there are impacts to every type of organization, whether you're been severely impacted by the pandemic and coming out of it and kind of the continued support and what that means or whether you haven't really needed much assistance kind of through the pandemic. But as you think about kind of the other businesses that have been impacted and the and the assistance that they're now going to get, the supply chain focus, all of this, as we know, just has the, the ecosystem of kind of the business economy, like you have to be focused and paying attention and scenario planning and thinking about all the ways that it impacts all aspects of the business, whether it's, you know, you think about just strategic planning, both to the treasury function, thinking about your supply chain. And I, I had someone who said something, said something recently, they were like, it may not impact us directly, but we are in someone else's supply chain and it impacts them. And so thinking about how that then in turn indirectly impacts us is um, something you can't kind of forget about or leave on the table. Well, and to the supply chain point, one question, you know, you mentioned, and we've talked about this a bit before, this idea of bringing business back to the U.S. maybe because what we've seen from the pandemic or otherwise, we realize we, we want some of that industry here. So again, how does that fit in as a factor to some of these conversations? 
Yeah, no, that's definitely remains a focus of the administration and something that they've um, talked about. The EO, I think the president issued earlier that was focused, as I said, specifically, and it plays into the the competition with China. So the notion around semiconductors, PP&E, one of the things that I think the administration kind of made clear early on and certainly made clear during um, initial conversations or discussions with China and Anchorage, Alaska, was the notion that this administration has not done a full 180 degree turn from the former Trump administration. This administration um, may not be seeking to use tariffs and sanctions um, in the same way or publicly talk about it, but there are still tariffs and sanctions in place that they have not removed. I had spoken with some of our global counterparts not too long ago, where I was suggesting that the administration is not interested in you know, redirecting supply chains to China, like they're focused as much as we're talking about, about onshoring some of that or working with some of our traditional allies or allies who might be closer in proximity in terms of having manufacturing done there. But the president has made it clear, this is part of kind of, as you think about where they talk when they first came in and the focus was COVID, the economy, climate change, and racial equity, that at his core, he's going to focus on domestic priorities and domestic policy before he's in, he even thinks about trade agreements, right? So in part of that, that's about domestic manufacturing, domestic investment, domestic, and the supply chain piece fits nicely in with that. With right now, like I said, the focus being on those things that were most um, laid bare during the pandemic, but many believe could potentially form the basis for looking at other areas, kind of as you as you think more broadly. You know, people talk about is this decoupling from China and kind of, and, and I'm sure Chris, if he, if he did touch on it, we'll talk about all the challenges of like actually implementing that or have that happen. And is that truly possible? So not decoupling, but definitely kind of a, a redirection in terms of, as you think about some of the onshoring from a supply chain standpoint. Well, and to that point, uh, I bought some masks recently made in Wisconsin where I was born. <laughs> and in fact, my kids did tease me and ask me and I said, yes, I did buy them because they're from Wisconsin, just because I have my Badger State roots there. So, yes. <laughs> uh, so Roz, let's, you mentioned climate change. And so let's touch on that quickly, because I think no discussion of what's going on Washington would be complete without talking about climate change, the focus on climate. So, so many directions we could go, but what do you expect to see coming out of some of these, the focus in this area? It is a big piece of the administration's agenda. And if you think about, um, you know, you and I have had this conversation before. I was saying, I have never seen, and I talk with my counterparts at a number of different companies, and I still don't think we fully grasp or understand the ramifications or the implications of just how much this administration has put addressing climate change at the forefront of kind of not just the agenda, but of their personnel and policy, as you think about, especially foreign policy, but also domestic policy. But you look at um, the fact that not only did the president um, name John Kerry as special envoy on climate, you know, 
each of the departments kind of and the NEC and the Security Council like have a climate position that's kind of noted for it. The State Department, where the, the administration has made it clear that they view climate change as a security issue and an international kind of security issue. So addressing climate change has to be at the forefront of dealing with any of our um, allies and adversaries, as you think about it. It's one of the first things that the president brought up in his first discussions with China, with China's president in terms of saying both human rights abuses as well as addressing climate change kind of being on the agenda. And, you know, you look at kind of the traditional areas, of course, the EPA, we even talking about the SEC as we think about disclosure that is coming, but we know, like I said, Treasury has increased focus on climate, the State Department, HHS. Like, I think you'd be hard pressed to find an agency that doesn't have climate at the forefront or a position that was developed focused exclusively on climate. That being the case, last, I think it was maybe now it's been two weeks ago, but when the president hosted the, cli- the virtual climate summit and unveiled his climate EO, the focus around international financing of climate change, right? And how you can impact climate change through financing. I think John Kerry had said a week or two before the president hosted the climate summit, we had had wind in Washington that a climate EO was coming. And he made a comment about how this is about impacting capital formation, right? And so the notion that you would use kind of climate change as a means of focusing on where capital flows to hit the targets that they're looking to hit. I think recently there was a a comment by someone in the administration who was saying you can't hit the uh, greenhouse gas emission targets and some of the other targets we have around climate without fundamentally shifting kind of the investments that are occurring in low carbon emission type entities, technologies, businesses. And so there there has been this notion, I will tell you, I was so struck by it in the climate EO. If you'll if you will indulge me on this point, it really struck me that as the president was laying out kind of the case for international financing of, of climate change and what you need to do, that they said specifically, this plan touches only on elements of international engagement and collaboration. In parallel, Guided by further executive action, future executive actions, domestic policy and regulatory processes may be launched to better align capital flows with low emissions, climate resilient pathways. International engagement will be carefully coordinated to ensure that it informs, strengthens and is consistent with domestic policy process in the United States. And to me, that's saying this is my opening bid around climate. Watch what we're doing in the international space around climate financing, because we think domestic is coming next in terms of thinking about the movement of capital flows. And that, to me, is like most people would say behind the scenes, well, we knew that was kind of happening. But for the administration to kind of, I, a friend of mine said recently who, who works at an um, investment management business, he said, they said it out loud. He said, they <laughs> said it out loud. That this is about moving, cap, you know, like actually impacting the flow of capital. And so what you've seen recently that I thought has been interesting is in the financial services sector, whether it's the trade associations from financial institutions have come together, a number of banks have 
have been in different in, in different forms where they have been issuing white papers and talking about um, support for addressing climate change and identifying, minimizing the risk and and talking about, you know, disclosure from a climate change perspective, but also trying to help shape the debate so that it is not completely about moving away completely from carbon, you know, the government moving you away from carbon solely into low emissions. But let's talk about how you can get greater disclosure, um, more consistent disclosure from a standards process so that investors are able to understand kind of what's really here and let the market kind of make the decisions. Um, So it'll be interesting to see kind of we know we have Chairman Gensler now at the SEC and we know that some of his initial, I know you recently did a podcast about the SEC, but the focus on climate disclosures as well as other ESG disclosures, whether it's board diversity or others, it's high on the agenda and it's going to be, you know, one of the the first things he addresses. And so understanding how that all is going to play in and what will happen as we look at kind of the international financing aspect and how that's going to translate from a domestic policy issue. One thing, just to make sure our listeners are keeping up with the lingo, EO, executive order. Oh, yes, am I right? Yes, Is that right? Yeah, that you are right. All right. Excellent. Right. Very good. Um, and I do, you mentioned this, but I definitely encourage our listeners to check out the podcast I did with Kyle Moffat and Michael O'Brien from Ross's team on Gary Gensler and talking, we did talk about climate, but a lot of other things about the SEC agenda. So when you were on previously, it was right after the inauguration and you said that you were a little hopeful that we would see more bipartisanship. Where are you now? Obviously, especially given these huge moving parts we're dealing with, I know it's just looking into a crystal ball, but curious if you have any sense for that. Yeah, it's so interesting, Heather. I'm looking into my crystal ball and it is so murky. It is murky, murky, murky because there there are so many different pieces that are playing into all of this, as I think we alluded to some of this going through and where you may have bipartisan agreement on things. There are aspects or elements that might get thrown in that just make it a little unsettling for either side. And so you think about traditional infrastructure where you could have agreement, but maybe either not a a view that you should go so heavy and kind of focusing on some of the climate change issues that Democrats may want to address or believing that um, it's not the time for some of the tax increases that Democrats may want to do. But at the same time, you have some Democrats who feel that if you are going to address the tax issues, you should address the state and local tax deduction that was impacted as a result of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. You have some Democrats who feel that you may not be going far enough in terms of addressing some of the climate risk and the and the climate change issues. And so both sides, there's still kind of, you know, this this notion of can you really come to an agreement as you think about things? I do think that um, you look at what happened even with Endless Frontier Act. Now, that's still to me, um, when you think about the notion of China as a competitive nation and, and rising in the U.S., kind of the, the need for investment to meet that challenge, there is agreement there. There is bipartisan agreement and bipartisanship. But as we always say, the devil's in the details. And so the House version, which differs from the Senate version, is still bipartisan. You still have Republicans and Democrats in the House who were able to come together and fashion a plan that they believe would, would be useful kind of in moving forward. But I have to tell you, there's still a lot of like the politics is still getting 
in the way of a lot of this. And many in the House have already started focusing on 2022. Like it's never too early to focus on an election. And so with the House being so closely divided, the notion that for Republicans that thought that you may be able to take control has got the attention and kind of the focus in terms of how you think about positioning and what you do. And by the same token, Democrats wanting to retain control, thinking about um, how they need to position themselves or, or what kind of issues. And then still the politics and the personal feelings. I always tell people sometimes forget that members of Congress are people too. And people just you know, the ability to reach across the aisle in the House sometimes is is an interesting thing. I'm encouraged by the bipartisan talks that are going on around policing reform that both Senator Scott and Senator Booker, along with Congresswoman Bass, have been leading. The notion that I know behind the scenes, you know, Congresswoman Bass and uh, Minority Leader McCarthy in the House, you know, both knew each other back in the California legislature. And so I think there are opportunities for real kind of reaching across the aisle and, and bipartisanship in the way we typically think about it from a political standpoint. But I'll leave you with this little nugget. And that's that if you haven't noticed, the administration is trying to uh, reframe how you think about bipartisanship. So as the administration talks about bipartisanship, they like to talk about the public and the public reaction and that you have Republicans, Democrats, and independents in support of policies or positions that the administration is advancing. So moving this notion of bipartisanship out of the context of Congress to say that it's bipartisan because the general public, no matter what party affiliation you have, has strong support for this, almost as if to say, Congress, you need to get on board. Definitely interesting thought to wrap things up with. So Roz, as always, appreciate your insight. And I guess my final thought listening to all this is to go back to what you are said, which is that this is not a time for CFOs and their teams to take an eye off what's going on in Washington, but instead, if anything, kind of double down on focusing there. So sure, we'll have you back, but as always, really appreciate all your insight. Thanks, Heather. I appreciate you. Join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes. Next Tuesday, we're covering stock comp considerations when going through the process of becoming public, whether through an IPO or a SPAC. And on Thursday, don't miss the next episode in our Forecast 2021 mini-series. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And... To stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.